It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions. He's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Well, I hope everybody had a great holiday season, and it is now the beginning of 2008. And man, has 2008 come into this year. It has um, not been the best of times out there in the financial world. Uh, I think a lot more people are starting to be a little more concerned about the volatility that's going on. But we are here to be your foundation, to kind of be that beacon of light in all the darkness out there and make you feel better about your personal finances. Go beyond common sense. This is The Money Guy Show, and I'm your host, Brian Preston. So if you want to contact the show, first let me give you some some basic information. You can go to moneyguy.net if you want to go pull up show notes. On that website, you're going to get our show notes and be able to get links and we're going to be making some some huge changes here in a few months, but right now that's the current setup. You can also go on there typing your email address on the left-hand side and get those updates sent directly to your email account every time we do go out there and update the show notes. Also, you can sign up directly on the website for the Wealth Report. That's our paid subscription service, so you get a quarterly news letter that's going to kind of keep you abreast of everything that's going on and help you make the best financial decisions. I am your host, Brian Preston. I'm a certified financial planner, and we're going to jump in, and this is what we're going to be talking about today. I'm kind of excited. Can you tell I missed you guys? I know I didn't do a new show last week, and um, I take a week off. I remember when we started this show, we used to do it every two weeks. Now I do it weekly. I take a week off, and I'm wondering, how, how did I do it without you guys? I, I just love getting all the feedback. I love doing the new shows, and glad to be in 2008, meaning we've been on the air for two years now. So what we're going we're to be talking about today is 2008 financial resolutions and how not to have a 1987 portfolio. And um, I've got some pretty funny things I want to do with that 1987 portfolio, and, and you'll know what that means when I get to it in a minute, because we're going to be talking about how the big boys invest. Um, how do you go out there and get the information that you're using to manage your portfolio, and where is the advice coming from? I think if you listen to today's show topic, you're going to recognize that uh, maybe you shouldn't be getting your advice from the guys that are getting paid for for necessarily the products they're selling. You know, Maybe you should go look to see how the, the big boys are doing it, the ones that are consistently beating the marketplace and the indices that are out there, and kind of take a clue and um, copy their portfolio to an extent. So we're going to be talking about that. But the first thing I want to talk about, I can't believe it's 2008 already. I guess time just flies when you're having a good time. And I know many of you out there have probably made some financial resolutions. A lot of you might even be brand new to the show and I want to welcome you because maybe you got an iPod for Christmas. Maybe you got a Zoom for Christmas because we now are out there on Microsoft's Zoom network as well. So I want to welcome all the new listeners, but I also want to help you with those financial resolutions because we're going to be that resource that can help you keep you on track and make sure it's not like you know those, those health resolutions where you go to the health club for a month or two and then you fall off. I want to actually help you with these financial resolutions so you do it and you stick to it. And what do you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, you've got that financial independence goal and you can sleep and do all the great things that you want to do and let your money work for you instead of you working with your hands, um, your back and everything else that might be required of it. So let's talk about some of the big areas 
that, um, and I'm also going to provide some links in these articles that, that are going to help you with some of these financial resolutions. I want to talk about the things that you need to be doing right now in 2008. And some of this is going to be a review, but I've got enough nuggets of information here that um, even my, my, my old-time listeners, my, my tried-and-true people who've been there with me from the beginning need to stick around because I've got some nuggets when I start talking about some of these endowments and big institutional investments that you need to, 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 to tune in and listen to. But the first thing, and I've talked about this quite a bit, if you are trying to look at your financial life and figure out what changes need to be made in 2008 to get you off on the right foot, I can't start with anything bigger and better then making sure that if you fell off the face of this earth tomorrow, if you got hit by a bus when you walked out of your office, if you you know, slipped on some ice outside your front door, that you were going to be okay, and your, well, your family, I should say, will be financially okay. And the biggest part of that comes in several ways. Wills. And wills have to be a part of your financial life. I know they're boring. Nobody likes to think about the fact that they might be leaving the earth. You know, death is one of those things... Nobody likes to talk about, but you need a will. And and I know I sound like a broken record by talking about this, but I do want to make sure that I bring this to your attention because especially if you have children, because what happens, you know, wills are not only used to distribute your financial assets, they're also used to, to tell the state and, 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 and people who are left what your wishes were with those children that maybe are on this planet that you brought here as well. Because if you don't provide direction on what happens to those children, the state's going to determine what happens to them. And who knows where your children are going to go if the state's determined. They might end up going with some relative, some uncle, aunt, um, a brother or sister that you had no you know, reason to even want them to go there. Maybe you don't agree with some of the things they've done in the past. You don't like their parenting style. You've got a personal friend that you think would do a better job. Wills are great assets that you need to make sure that you're doing a will, going out there. I don't care if you do it yourself or if you go hire and list the services of an attorney. You need to make sure you have a will so that your children are not at the mercy of the states, and also so your assets are distributed easily. I, you know, one of the things that breaks my heart, and I deal with it all the time with clients, when you leave this planet, um, you're going to find that your survivors, your relatives, are going to fight over the stupidest things, whether it's money, whether it's, you know, little trinkets that you leave behind, maybe it's um, a, a trophy from when you played football in high school. I don't know, but, you know, family members, it's funny what people... Um, you know, want to take a piece of to just remember your life. And so they're going to fight over the craziest things. I deal with this all the time with, you know, with estates and families that are fighting over whether it's, you know, the keepsakes or the assets. If you can do your family a favor of putting your wishes on paper, and, and wills will do that in the broad sense, but then also you might want to attach a list of where you want all those keepsakes to go to. You will help your family tremendously. Now, the next thing you need to consider, life insurance. Now, wait a minute. Before you turn off this show, I am not a life insurance salesman. Remember, I'm a fee-only financial planner. Do not sell any life insurance products whatsoever so you can kind of, whew, relax, know that I'm not here trying to sell you a product. But I do want you to know that life insurance can be a tremendous asset for your family. And when I talk about life insurance, I'm specifically talking about term life insurance. And life insurance can be used as a tool. I always tell people, what's the purpose of life insurance? Life insurance is not to, to, you know, 
let your family hit the lottery after you've passed away. What life insurance is for is to replace income. If you're the main producer for your family or even one of the support incomes, maybe your, your, your spouse makes more money than you and they pay for the majority of the bills, but you have a job out there as well, or, or you take care of the family. I mean, let's not underestimate the value of the, of the spouse that might be raising the children, whether it's the husband or the wife, because there's value to that as well. Even if you don't have earned income, I think there's some value, as I'm going to share with you in a minute. So you have to put life insurance is there to replace income, pay off debt, because also think about if you left this planet tomorrow, who is going to to meet all those goals of paying off debt, paying the utilities, paying for the groceries, putting the kids through college, how is that going to occur if your income is no longer coming in on a month-to-month basis? And that's exactly what happens when you leave this planet. But with a term policy, you can do that. You can, you can get enough insurance that will come in to meet all those goals, pay off the house, pay off any debts that you might have out there, put enough money away for the kids to go to college, and then allow your spouse or significant other, other to have enough money that they can um, you know, continue on or, or at least get back on their feet um, while they're trying to figure out what to do now that you've left us. So I, I've put, and, and this is one of those things where, you know, if, if if, I'm not a salesman by any means, but I did put you a link because, I, I, you know, when you talk about life insurance, people always will probably leave and go, Brian, well, you, you told me I need to do some life insurance, but how much and where do I go to research it? Um, and so I've put a link on my site within the show notes. If you go to moneyguy.net, you'll see there's a link in there to a, to a website for Michael Gass's agency. Now, who in the world is Michael Gass's? Michael Gass's I've actually known since I was about five or six years old. Um, I grew up with his daughter, went to elementary through high school um, with his daughter, Angela. And um, Michael is just a great guy. He's um, He does insurance. He does a lot of you know disability group plans and other things. So you know, but he's always that insurance guy that I've never got that ick feeling where he's trying to sell stuff. And he also has a great tool on his website, if you follow that link, where you don't have to put in any personal information, but you can run term illustrations in, in all 50 states. You can pretty much run a term illustration to see how much term insurance would cost, you know, whether it's a 10-year, 20-year, whatever term you might need. You can run it on his site, you know, without having to call somebody because, you know, I know it scares you to death to call an insurance guy because you know he might, you're, you're always nervous he might try to sell you something. You don't have to do that if you take advantage of this link I put on there. And you can go run some illustrations. If it does make sense, you might want to call Mike because um, the thing is, is that I always say, and this is the dirty little secret about insurance, is don't buy from an internet site unless you've got somebody you can hold accountable because state regulators, state insurance regulators, usually make sure that all insurance rates are pretty much the same. I know that's the way it works here in Georgia, is it doesn't matter if you buy a life insurance policy, a term life insurance policy on the internet versus an agent, um, they're going to have the exact same rates. The difference is, is if you don't, if you have a service issue, if you need somebody to call to hold accountable for us, so maybe you have a, you change addresses, you move, you want to keep the insurance, but you need to update your records. It's a lot harder to find somebody to call if you bought it from the internet versus if you've got a personal phone number and somebody you can hold accountable to call and get that customer service. So I put Mike's link on there. Um, if you go to his website at the Michael Gasses Agency. Dot com On the right-hand side, it says get a quote. Click on that. Um, I think it would be an asset for you. Now, when we talk about how much insurance you need, what I always tell people, a good rule of thumb is typically 10 times your income. 
And um, that means if you make $50,000 a year, $500,000 might be appropriate for you. So you can go quickly do that. Now you say $500,000, how much is that going to cost? Let me tell you, I have um, quite a bit of insurance. I have right at $2 million of life insurance term, all term, life insurance on myself. And um, I pay less than $1,000, well, right at $1,000. I think it's a little over $1,000 for, for close to $2 million worth of coverage. Just bought $250,000 worth of coverage on my wife um, for 20-year level term, meaning that the rate will stay the same for 20 years, and it's only costing $140 a year. Um, so that's how cheap it is. You can't almost afford not to do this because and you, my wife does not work. She raises our daughter, but... I felt like it was necessary to still have insurance on her because if something would happen to her, and this is what I was saying, don't underestimate the value of the spouse that is raising the children, is that if something happened to her, I've obviously got to find somebody to help out on raising our daughter while I you know, try to recover to get back to becoming where I can be productive at work. So we needed some insurance to, to help out with that. Plus, I wanted to be able to pay off um, our home mortgage, and, and that was the amount of income, I mean, amount of insurance that seemed appropriate. And we did 20-year, How when you're trying to determine how long you need to buy the term for, how long do you want the term of the life insurance to be level, consider this, is that if you have young children, like I have a 4-year-old, I bought a 20-year level term because I felt like in 20 years, my daughter will be out of college, she'll be at, you know, so she'll hopefully be out of the house, um, we'll hopefully in 20 years have enough income, you know, enough money saved up in investments that will be financially independent, and we won't even need the life insurance. So that's what you need to take into consideration is, you know, what your specific needs are, how old your children are, when do you think you'll be financially independent, and you can determine your term off of those variables. Um, But I think 10 times what you make is a good rule of thumb that you can consider and it will help you out tremendously in, in making that right decision. But life insurance is definitely, definitely necessary um, and is dirt cheap if you're going the term route. And don't be scared off just because you have to deal with, you know, an insurance guy. I think you can, you can go out there. There's enough tools and resources that this can be um, something that can change your, your family's life if, if the worst days do come, you know, if you, if you pass away. So make sure you're doing that. When we come back from the commercial break, I've got to talk about a few more things. I'm going to talk about beneficiary designations and how that impacts um, your financial life. I'm going to also talk about asset allocation as well as we're going to talk about how the big institutions are managing money. And I'm going to have a review of what happened in 1987 because I want to make sure you don't have a 1987 portfolio. So stick with us. Thank you, thank you so much for listening to The Money Guy Show. We'll be right back after this break. I'm your host, Brian Preston. Brian Preston, one half of Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. I'm now a fee-only planner. I didn't like the whole conflict of interest that was out there with commissions. If you found out how profitable life insurance was to sell, everybody started looking like they needed life insurance. So I just took that out of the equation and got into focusing on what I was good at, which was the consulting side of giving advice, helping people learn how to make money, and that way the client doesn't feel like they're worried about me selling them products. It allows me to really build trust because I have what's also called a fiduciary responsibility and obligation to put the client's best interest even ahead of my own. What I think is the most important part of my job educating the client. The great thing about if you're a good fee-only financial planner, you don't have to sell anybody anything. If you can educate the client, it goes much further than ever trying to sell them products. 
Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management, fee-only financial and investment advisors. Visit Preston-Cleveland.com. That's Preston-Cleveland.com. Well, before we went to break, by the way, this is the Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston. By day, I'm a fee-only financial planner. And if you want to go check out our show notes, you can go to moneyguy.net and bring yourself up to speed with, with everything we're talking about today. And before we went to break, I talked about you know things that you need to do in 2008 to make sure your life, your financial life, is on track. And what I talked about briefly was wills, how important it was to have wills um, how important it was to to make sure you have enough life insurance, and specifically term life insurance, to replace the income and pay off the debt that maybe your family would be left with, strapped with, if something should happen to you. And then I want to talk about, in this second segment, I want to talk about the importance of beneficiary designations. Um, this is super important because what are beneficiary designations? Beneficiary designations are you know what your what you're say, who you're saying should be the ultimate beneficiary of typically your retirement assets so you like your 401k's have beneficiary designations your 403b's your IRAs um, all those retirement type of accounts have beneficiary designations. Life insurance also has a beneficiary designation as well as trust. If you live in one of those states that has very high probate costs, um, you probably are going to have a revocable trust, and you're also going to have beneficiaries named within that trust document. So it's tremendously important to think about these things because I know uh, you know, every year big changes happen in our life. Um, some years are bigger than others. You might have a year where you have uh, new children being born, um, or you might, you know, unfortunately have a divorce in the family, or you've got a new marriage. Maybe you're young, um, you have your first marriage, and you, when you first started working, you named mom and dad as your beneficiary designations. Now you've got a wife. Who knows, maybe now you have a wife and child, and you never change your beneficiary designations. That's awful. You've got to make sure that you update these beneficiary designations to reflect where you are in your life because it's bad news if you don't do this. A lot of people think if you just have an updated will, as I mentioned in the first segment, that's all you need to do. And that's not true because unfortunately, not unfortunately, because there's actually some tax benefits to, to having beneficiary designations. Um, your wills do not determine how these type of assets, your retirement assets, your life insurance, and your trust are distributed. Wills only determine assets that are like in taxable accounts as well as personal items and, and anything else that specifically goes through probate. Everything else that does not go through probate that you, you know just needs a death certificate to, to pass on to, you know, if, if something should happen to you like these, you know, retirement accounts, life insurance, as well as trust documents, don't even touch your will. So you've got to make sure that you update these beneficiary designations so that they truly reflect where you are in life. Another thing that you need to take into account, if you have minor children, if you have children who are not of age, you know, you got young kids, like I have a four-year-old, as I've mentioned, you've got to make sure that your, your life insurance as well as your retirement accounts reflect What's in your wills? Because a lot of states, I know in Georgia, minor children are not allowed to really retain those assets without a trust. Because let's face it, you can't give a, a four-year-old $2 million worth of life insurance proceeds. She wouldn't know what to do with it. We'd probably go out and buy a bunch of stuffed animals, you know, uh, VTech video games. There's no telling what my daughter would go out there and get with 
$2 million if she was given the opportunity. So most states won't allow you to do that. They want you to set up a trust document. Um, so what I would recommend that you want to consider, and, and this is probably gets to the complex stage that you need to probably have an, a, you know, an attorney help you draft it. I have in my wills a trust that is set up that if something should happen to me or my wife, a trust will be formed. All the proceeds of those life insurance and those retirement accounts will go into that trust. There's a trustee that will administer it, and then the ultimate beneficiary will be my daughter, but it does not directly go to her. So you need to make sure that you are, if you have minor children, that your tr- that your will and your beneficiary designations are working together so that your, ch- your minor children will not be put in some crazy situation um, where the state has to figure out what to do with those assets you know, for, for the ultimate benefit of your, your heirs. Um, the next thing I want to talk about was asset allocation. Like I, I talked about, there's a ton of bad news out there right now with the economy. Um, and it, but and it's still not too late to evaluate your asset allocation and your investment capital. It could be one of those things where you just haven't been watching what's been going on with your investments. Um, and, and this is a good time to go out there and look. By the way, when I say you know, there's some bad news. This does not mean that you need to go out there and put all your money and jump into cash investments, you know, go completely into the money markets. Because there's a cruddy thing out there called, and I said cruddy, there's a cruddy thing out there called inflation that will make that a bad decision in the long term. So so you don't want to get out there and be a market timer by any, by any stretch of the imagination. But you do want to make sure that your allocation does reflect where you are, your station in life, you know, whether you're young, just starting out with savings, whether you're, you know, at your peak earning years, or whether you only have a few years left of working, and you need to make sure that what you put away in that nest egg is still going to be there when you hit retirement and, and hit your financial independence stride. So these are the things, we're all in different stages of our life, and you got to make sure that asset allocation reflects where you are in life, your risk profile, because we all have different risk profiles with how much risk we feel comfortable taking out there in the marketplace, and, and then just what you ultimately want to do. You've got to know where your goals are um, and when you want to retire, you know, where you want to retire, all these things take into account, and plus as well as how much you might need in retirement, like your income requirements. So all this goes into your, your asset allocation. Now, all investors should make sure that they had that that they look at their investment portfolio and anything that they might need over the next three to five years, they need to keep in liquid investments. And when I talk about liquid investments, I talk about you know money markets, savings accounts, and, and things like that. Now, also, I'll tell you with everything that's going on out there, I'd also make sure that your liquid investments are staying within the FDIC coverage amounts and what I, and that what FDIC is that's insurance if something happens to your financial institution the government will come in and guarantee those accounts and protect their value um, and there are thresholds I think for an individual account it's a hundred thousand dollars for joint accounts it's two hundred thousand dollars so if you have three hundred thousand dollars I don't know why you'd need three hundred thousand dollars completely liquid unless you were paying cash for a house that you were building in the next few years you still need to spread that money around so that you don't go above those thresholds. Because I'll give you a personal um, example, not a personal for me, but NetBank, you know, had a lot of trouble and actually got acquired. Well, they went out, they filed, they went out of business, but then their assets were acquired, I believe, by ING. I'm doing this off memory. But there were some people that had a million dollars in money market accounts over at NetBank. Well, if you only have $100,000 of guaranteed protection, 
that other $900,000 that they, that person had in, in cash goes to the creditor list instead of being fully protected. So you want to make sure that those liquid investments are protected. But what I was getting to is the point is, is that any money you need for the next three to five years, don't invest it in stocks, bonds, or anything that's volatile. You know, that could be real estate, that could be commodities, anything that, that has any chance of volatility, don't put that money if you know you're going to need it over the next three to five years. So that's all investors. Make sure that you've got that money that you're going to need you know, put away in liquid cash equivalent type of type of investments and everything else. Let me give you some other suggestions. If you're approaching the end of your working years, meaning you're you re- look at, look up and you realize you've got five to seven years before you retire, you need to make sure that your portfolio is positioned to weather the upcoming market volatility. Talked to a gentleman just the other day, late fifties was pretty much, I think if I'm doing this off memory, I think he still had 90% of his portfolio in domestic, you know, in equities. That seems a little aggressive to me when you're, you're at the end of your working career. So you need to make sure that that, that portfolio does reflect what's going on with your financial life. Young investors, you need to take a different outlook. Um, I can remember when I came out of college. It doesn't seem, I used to be embarrassed to tell people when I graduated because it made me seem younger than I was. But now that we're in 2008, I don't feel as young anymore. Um, I graduated college in the mid-90s. And then you remember the mid-90s was the period where we had the runaway stock market. Everybody was making money hand over fist. It wasn't uncommon to find the S&P 500 making in the mid-20 to high 20s. And I remember being coming out of college because, you know, when you come out of college, you don't make a ton of money. And um, I remember thinking, wow, if I was older, I could really be turning my money that I'd already saved into a ton of money. So I, I felt like I'd missed a lot of opportunity. Um, well, young investors, you know, I know a lot of you probably have that feeling because you think about it, the market's really been good from about October 2002 all the way through. I know 2007 wasn't a great year, but what I'm finding looking at a lot of the client portfolios out there, most people still made between 5 to 8% last year, so it wasn't a negative year. They still made money, um, even with the volatility that we had in the fourth quarter. So really, the market wasn't bad from October of 2002 through the end of 2007. So a lot of young people might be feeling like, hey, I missed the boat. I didn't, you know, it seems like if I had been investing, you know, if I'd just been a few years older, I could have really taken advantage of this. Well, don't let your hearts worry because now we might be headed into a market correction period where maybe even the big R word, recession. And when that happens, a young investor should kind of be, if there's a silver lining in all this volatility, it's actually a great opportunity for you because this is the time that you can start building shares at a depressed value. So that's what I always say is my young investors should make sure that they do not outsmart themselves. Don't let those emotions play upon you and make you want to become one of those timers where you go to cash with your 401k or your retirement assets and you're waiting for that proper time. Don't do it. Just pick yourself out a good, nice, moderately aggressive portfolio and then, you know, let yourself just keep buying on a month-to-month basis and you're going to wake up, you know, when the market comes into recovery mode and you're going to be so glad you did because you're going to see the power of that compounding interest. So definitely take advantage of the silver lining and recognize that you have many, many years of investments. This recent volatility that might carry over is only going to be a hiccup in your long-term investment plan. So make sure you do that. So, now, I'm not going to be able to get into all this, but I'm going to be able to get into enough of it, that, and we'll come back from the break and finish off. I want to talk about 1987, and, and I don't want you to get caught investing like it's 1987. And what do I mean by that? Well, 
I went out there and I downloaded the annual report for the Yale Endowment. And that's Yale, you know, the big Ivy League school out there. They have an endowment, one of the biggest endowment funds out there that is huge. And um, if, you, if you're just not in the know, there's a lot of tremendous resources that can be pulled from going out there and seeing the knowledge on investing that comes from, you know, tremendously successful institutions that are out there investing and see what they're doing because they do these annual reports. It's no different than going out there and pulling the annual report of Berkshire Hathaway that comes out around March of every year. And we'll be talking about that in upcoming shows. Going out there and looking what successful investment groups have gone out there, institutions have done, and, and, you know, copying some of that for your own personal finances. There's nothing, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel to be a successful investor. So I go out there and you want to know, well, how successful has the Yale endowment been? Well, let's talk about this. Over the last 20 years, they've averaged a rate of return of 15.6% a year. Not too shabby because, remember, um, the S&P 500 historically averages, you know, somewhere between 10 to 12%. I think 123 if you're going all the way back to the 20s. So um, a 156 annual rate of return for the last 20 years is very strong. I think everybody would be very happy with that. That almost sounds like they've been investing in the 90s and it never the 90s never stopped for the Yale Endowment. So we're going to be talking about what they've done to become very successful with their investments and um, and make sure that you're, you're doing it and which products you can incorporate into your portfolio to do the same thing. Now, back to 1987. And, and, and we'll come back with the entertaining stuff when I come back from the commercial break. It was, but in 1987, that was the key year that the Yale Endowment shifted from a traditional stock bond and cash portfolio to their more diversified portfolio that I'm going to talk about right after the commercial break. And when they did this, this dramatic change on their portfolio going from a 1987 stock bond and cash portfolio, the, it, their assets have just ballooned. They went from, you know, if you looked at what the Dell, Yale Endowment had back in 1987, they were somewhere around $2 billion, which is huge. Don't get me wrong, $2 billion is a lot of money. But that has ballooned up over the last 20 years to now they have over $22 billion. That's a tenfold increase. Um, and a lot of that, sure, they've had contributions into the endowment, but a lot of that also has to do with their tremendous return on their investments. And I'm going to help you out on um, taking advantage of what they've done when we come back from the commercial break so that you can make some, incorporate some of their planning you know, asset classes and their logic and their wisdom with your own personal investments and um, you know, recognize maybe your advisor's not doing everything he should for you and you might want to you know, take a different change, take, take a different approach to your whole investment philosophy. So you know, stick with me. I want to thank you guys for tuning in. If you want to go check out the show notes, you can go to our website, that's moneyguy.net. You can also email me. You can go to brian at moneyguy.net um, if you want to write me an email. And then I want to thank you guys also for the great feedback y'all put out there on iTunes um, because that's what's kept us so popular. And um, I want to thank you guys for listening. We'll be right back after this break. I'm your host, Brian Preston. Brian the Money Guy Preston here. If you enjoy the information that I share on The Money Guy Show, then you'll love my print newsletter, The Wealth Report. The Wealth Report is the quarterly newsletter that I send my wealth management clients, and I'm making it available to you for the affordable price of $29 a year. 
you can sign up at the Money Guy website. That's money-guy.com. This quarter's Wealth Report covers putting the summer stock sell-off in perspective. Ranks of millionaires skyrocketing across the globe. The most common mistakes that retirees make and how you can avoid them. What else should be in your will and choosing an estate planning attorney. All this great information is packed into the fourth quarter Wealth Report. So what do you have to lose? You probably spend more than $29 on lunch this week. So take me up on this incredible offer and sign up today at the Money Guy website. Once again, that's money-guy.com. Money-guy.com. Sign up now. Money-guy.com. Back for the last segment of the Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston. By day, I'm a certified financial planner and running a fee-only financial planning firm down here on the south side of Atlanta. And I want to talk to you, we were, before we went to break, we were talking about the Yale Endowment Fund and how they just came out with their annual report. And it was very interesting because they talked about how they made a dramatic shift in 1987 from the traditional investing that I think many of us are probably still doing if you have one of the big wirehouses or one of the big brokers out there managing your money where you're just doing stocks, bonds, and cash. You've got to go beyond 1987 to really reach the the benefits as well as the more stable returns that come from greater diversification. Now, before we get in that, I want to have a little fun. Because I say the word 1980, I say the year 1987, and a lot of you, you know, say 1987. What was going on in 1987? So I always like to give a refresher. The two things that I always think about when I'm trying to figure out what was going on in a year, because it's kind of like a, 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 a something that can pop your mind and, and you know bring you back to that decade or that year and let you know what was going on. The top movies in 1987, and this is hilarious to me. The top movies of 1987 was Three Men and a Baby. It grossed like over $100 million, Fatal Attraction, and then Beverly Hills Cop 2. That's what, that was, that's what was going on movie-wise in 1987. Now, let's talk about music. And I've got, this is kind of like um, an interactive thing. I'm going to play the top three songs. Well, I don't know if they're the top three, but it's the three when I pulled up the top ten songs of 1987 that really caught my, um, my fancy, and I kind of downloaded them from, from iTunes and put them on the iPod. Listen to these top three songs um, because I think it cracks me up. Here's the first one. I'll tell you who it is after you hear the, the, the intro here. Listen to the guitar riffs. We're going to stop it right after he does the, the, electric car, the electric guitar slide. Here it comes, I think. Here it goes. Isn't that awesome? That is Poison Talk Dirty to Me. So that brings you back. 1987, that's what was going on. We had Poison Talk Dirty to Me. Listen to another song. You can tell we were right in the middle of the hair band era. Um, here's another song that I actually owned on cassette tape back during this time. Here we go. See if you can, you can pick out this song. Oh, you got to love the hair bands, how they started off with these slow intros. Especially, this is, I'll go ahead and tell you, this is White Snake. Here I go again. Starts off so slow and mellow, and then, you know, later in the song, if I could fast forward, it has these huge hammering guitars. So that's what was going on. And then, let's not forget, this one, I think everybody was probably embarrassed to admit that they liked this song. But this song actually made it to number one in 1987. little keyboard action. Gotta love the keyboards of the 80s. little cello, probably a a synthesized cello there. 
Yep, that's um, the cutting crew. I died in your arms. So I hope that you know that brings you back to 1987, and you can kind of picture where you were listening to those times. But when I talk about 1987, I want to talk about you know as I, I talked as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people are still walking around in 1987 because they have portfolios that only have stocks, bonds, and cash, and that's just not appropriate these days. Um, and I give you an example. I talked to I had one of I have, I have friends at other you know, big brokerage firms and elsewhere. And, you know, this is the time of the year that we're all doing quarterly reports to see how our clients did for 2007. And I had one call me up and he goes, man, how are your clients doing? Because he goes, you know, 2007 was a little rough there at the end, you know, and all of our analysts that we've got doing the research are telling us to start moving towards, you know, the large cap stocks, the industrials. And, you know, this is, this is what they're doing. And the reason, and there's nothing wrong with that advice. It's just that, you know, it, it cracks me up because I, I think instead of telling clients to go into specific sectors like industrials or food, you know, go buy bread makers, you know, these, you know, the companies that, that do the, the, you know, food items and things like I think you can go much better than that and just go outside of, of stocks altogether. And, and that, but that's what, unfortunately, the playbook that a lot of big wirehouses and brokers deal with. They don't know about a lot of these other investment classes that we're going to be talking about. So let's talk about what happened at at Yale, at the Yale Endowment, that caused them to go from $2 billion in 87 and grow up to 22, over $22 billion with an annual rate of return that's well over 15%. And this is what it says. It says, over the past two decades, Yale reduced dramatically the endowment's dependence on domestic marketable securities by reallocating assets to non-traditional asset classes. In 1987, nearly 80% of the endowment was committed to U.S. stocks, bonds, and cash. Today, target allocations call for 15%, only 15% in domestic market securities, while the diversifying assets of foreign equity, private equity, absolute return strategies, and real assets, a.k.a. real estate, dominate the endowment, representing 85% of the target portfolio. The heavy allocation of, to non-traditional asset classes stems from their return potential and diversifying power. Today's actual and target portfolios have significantly higher expected returns. And catch this, this is the part that I love about this, is that they also have lower volatility than the 1987 portfolio. So that's like the best of both worlds. Do you hear that? They, they get higher expected returns as well as lower volatility. That's a win-win in my book. It says alternative assets by their very nature tend to be less efficiently priced than traditional marketable securities, providing an opportunity to exploit market inefficiencies through active management. The endowment's long-term horizon is well-suited to exploiting illiquid, less efficient markets such as venture capital, leverage buyouts, oil, gas, timber, and real estate. So do you see what I mean? They, they've gone, and you can do this too. This is not just the Yale Endowment that can do this. You can go out there and do this with your own personal portfolio. Now, I've, I've got a link to the Yale Endowment annual report if you go to the website, moneyguy.net, if you want to go look at those. But they are, they're, as of you know when they, they posted this, their current target allocation has... 23% going to absolute return, and I'm going to get into what absolute return means in a minute. They have 11% going towards domestic equity, 
4% going to fixed income, which is another words of saying bonds. And they say in their, their research report that they've stayed away from bonds because of, they think there's a lot of inflation concerns out there, and bonds do dreadful when we're talking about inflation. Foreign equity, they have, um, that's like foreign stocks, they have 15%. Private equity, 19%, which is going to be harder for the average investor to get into. And then real assets, which is real estate, 28%. And real, I guess I could say real assets is not just real estate. It can also be hard assets. They're probably talking about getting into timber, um, you know, as well as commodities and some other things. That's, that's the way they have it broken down. And then their cash is a very small percentage of their investment assets. Now, when I talk about absolute return, when they talk about that in the, in the, in the, the Yale Endowment Annual Report, it says in July 1990, Yale became the first institutional investor to pursue absolute return strategies as a distinct asset class, beginning with a target allocation of 15%. Designed to provide significant diversification to the endowment, absolute return investments seek to generate high long-term real returns by exploiting market inefficiencies. Approximately half of the portfolio is dedicated to event-driven strategies, which rely on a very specific corporate event such as a merger, spinoff, or bankruptcy restructuring to achieve a target price. Now, when they started doing this in 1990, there was really no way for the average individual investor to take advantage of some of these complex strategies. That's not the case anymore because the market has actually recognized that stocks, bonds, and cash don't get it done by themselves anymore. So that there's actually products out there, mutual funds, that are out there that can do and, and kind of copy, mimic some of these strategies that are used by some of these big institutional endowments out there. And a good example is um, when they talk about doing, you know, being driven by specific events like mergers and so forth, there's a fund out there called the Merger Fund, and the symbol for that is M-E-R-F-X that does that. It goes and tries to take advantage of inefficiencies in the marketplace um, and, and take advantage of those for their investors. Um, it goes on in this endowment report. It says the other half of the portfolio contains value-driven strategies, which involve hedge positions and assets or securities that diverge from underlying economic value. And just like when, when as I was staying with the merger fund in 1990, you know there, probably, there weren't many funds or mutual funds. It was really only the richest of rich could go out there and buy these hedge funds. Um, but that's not the case anymore. There's mutual funds out there that copy a lot of these strategies that try to. Pre- generate what's known as absolute returns, meaning whether the market's going up or down, these type of portfolios try to make money. The answer is, do you make money in up or down markets? Yes, is the answer. They, they try to, even if the market's getting beat up, these things are absolute return. They're trying to make money. And those fun, examples of those funds are like Hussman Strategic Growth Fund, at symbol HSGFX, Caldwell and Orkin Market Opportunity, COAGX, and then the Gateway Fund, um, G-A-T-E-X. These are all funds that you can go check out that are available to individual investors that can copy some of these more complex strategies. And as, as I've talked about, they are doing over 20% in these type of strategies. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm not too far off of that with, um, with most of my clients. If they look at their investment reports, uh, they'll see that I'm doing approximately that much as well. So these are the things you've got to think about. Go outside you know, of the stock bonds and cash and look at, you know, look at commodities, look at hedge funds. Don't get crazy with some of these riskier things like commodities and real estate is definitely not in its best place right now. But you do need to think about things way outside of um, what was the norm back in 1987. And don't be caught. I mean, you wouldn't walk into 
um, you know, your local grocery store in parachute pants right now. So why would you go out there and have a portfolio that's doing exactly what they were doing back in 1987? So I want to move on because we're running out of time, and I need to talk about a few quick things before I close out the show today. First, I want to give you a blog spotlight. I had a listener who wrote me, um, who has a blog, and we share a lot of the same concerns out there for a lot of our teachers, firemen, um, you know, nurses, people who work at hospitals, because a lot of the people who work in these type of government organizations or not-for-profit organizations have 403Bs. And unfortunately, the, the bad part of 403Bs is that the people who have made the biggest impact in that industry are insurance with ver- insurance companies with variable annuities. And they can be very expensive. Um, mutual funds companies are available out there. Most people don't know the opportunities they have for moving their 403B assets over to a low-cost mutual fund company. It's very easy. It's much more flexible than the, the strict um, rules of 401Ks. 403Bs have a lot of flexibility. But you can go out there. Um, I have this listener named Jerry who's got um, a website that I've linked on the site, moneyguy.net. It's called the 403 Boondoggle. Um, you can go out there on the website and click on his link. I think Jerry's got some great input there. Other info outside of investing. I came across an article link, um, and this article is from the Washington Washington Post, also uh, actually, and it says um, that there's a, a disturbing trend out there with the recording industry. The recording industry is trying to make it where it is deemed illegal to CDs you've purchased in the past to download those onto your MP3 player. Um, there's a case out there. You can, I've got the link um, out there on the website, moneyguy.net, that you can go look at. But there's a case out there where the insur- the record, record industry's lawyers have argued in a brief filed earlier in the month that um, that this this person they were suing has made I'm reading this directly. It says made on it says MP3 files um, how made on his computer from legally bought CDs are unauthorized copies of copyrighted recordings. I just want to bring that to your attention. I know that's not really financially. Um, something that impacts your personal finances. But we all, if you're listening to this show, majority of you probably are listening to it on um, an MP3 player. So I want to make sure we're watching these type of trends. Also, show input. I need you guys to help me out. Y'all have been great by putting some iTunes reviews and other things, but I'm hoping 2008 is going to be a huge year for the Money Guy Show, and I need your input. We're going to be making some big changes this year over the next two months, and we're going to be adding listener forums out there on the um, the website. We're going to be offering a PDF version, a down, email version of the Wealth Report newsletter. Um, we're also going to be offering some new premium content, but I'd love to hear from my listeners to know what other changes you'd like to see with the Money Guy Show. You know, not just show topic ideas, but I need you to tell me what you'd like to see on the website, what you'd like to see with the format of the show. These are the things I need your help. And to that end, I've also had a lot of growth with my firm to the point that with this broadcasting as well as managing the money of my fee-only financial planning clients, I'm going to need to hire either an intern or an entry-level associate. So if there's anybody out there who who thinks they fit the bill of an entry-level associate or an intern that doesn't mind the south side of Atlanta, I'd love for you to shoot me an email at brian, B-R-I-N, at moneyguy.net so I can know about you. But thanks so much. I hope you're enjoying 2008. Stick with the Money Guy Show, and I'm going to do everything I can to restore order to your financial chaos and go beyond common sense. And I thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Brian Preston. Until next time, we'll see you soon.
The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.